This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. This podcast episode is brought to you by the Old Ways Actual Play Team. This actual play uses the 7th edition Call of Cthulhu tabletop role-playing game rules by Chaos. This actual play is performed by adults and in an adult setting. While we try very hard to stick to language for all ages, listeners should know that this podcast may include mature themes. All content, including names, places, events, companies, and etc. that may bear resemblance to entities living or dead is strictly coincidental. My name is Michael Diamond, and for tonight's game, I will be your keeper. Thank you for joining us to get another episode of the Old Ways Podcast. I'm your keeper, Keeper Michael, and we return to Horror on the Orient Express. And we have an awful lot to get to tonight. Uh, before we do, I'd like to thank you, the listener, and you, the Patreon supporter. Uh, we greatly appreciate your time and your energy spent and all of the wonderful ways that you shape our stories. So if you'd like to support us in that regard, you can at patreon.com slash the old ways podcast. On that note, I will turn to introductions to my right. Hi there, this is Mike and I play James Robert Fraser. And uh, what just happened? It's a great question. I don't even know myself. Uh, to Mr. Fraser's right. Hi, this is Rena. I play Lady Elizabeth Fitzroy, and uh, I'm having a nice nap. Yeah, you're, you've been warmed by something that you're not really sure what, and maybe you should get a blanket. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? At the end of the table. Hello, this is Giles, and I'm playing Simon Griffith, and he may be alive, but boy, does he have a big headache. Yes, sir, you absolutely do. And to Mr. Griffith's right. Hi, this is Miranda, and I play Maggie Bellinger, and I almost made it out with Richard. Almost did. This close. If only that flying, fiery witch hadn't caught up with you, you'd be, you'd have made it out by now, right? Uh, and last, but most certainly not least. I'm Martin, and I'm playing Richard Courtney. And, uh, well, by some miracle, the trousers are still intact. We've seen a tree chicken, a hut that... You can't eat, apparently, and uh, weird birds and things and, I don't know, whatever else it was, but uh, the trousers are still in one piece. Yeah, perhaps uh, your luck is turning around finally, Professor. So we're going to raise the curtain tonight aboard a short-gauge track, a small locomotive that moves its way back to Belgrade. In the intervening hours between when we last saw our investigators and we see them now, they've managed to make it back to that small village that they spent a night in. They managed to speak to several of the important people there. They also managed to find Lady Elizabeth some clothes and took in, we'll just say, a brief respite before getting back on the train and getting back towards Belgrade. As we see them now, they've huddled onto that same train, which is mostly empty, all except for a conductor, themselves, and maybe a couple of farmers with some small pigs. And so, I think we'll first focus in for a moment on Miss Bellinger, who's managed to clutch that new piece very close. No matter how much it hurts her own arms to do so, She's one step closer now. And in fact, it seems all she needs is the head and her prize collection will be complete. Maggie, maybe you could share with us what, what your experience or what your, what she's thinking about in this sort of space. Well, I'm not going to lie, Mike. My first thought when you said that is maybe the head's my head and my head needs to go on the body. Maggie's lost in some pretty crazy thoughts right now, but honestly, a, a big one of them is, I don't know if, you know, Alexander's talking about us destroying these pieces, and I know that's what we set out to do, but I don't really see the point in it anymore. I mean, 
these things are great. I love them. They love me. And uh, my good friend, the Comte, would be really disappointed in me if I were to destroy them, I think. So she'd probably go around side-eyeing each one of her companions one by one, suspicious of maybe what their intentions are. Hmm. Then uh, anyone else interested in perhaps bringing up some topical conversation? Simon, how are you feeling? Simon is feeling like crap. He is. He's taken some aspirin. I'm assuming we do have aspirin since this is the early 20th century. Well, keep in mind that you're not in America. And so the available, um, we'll just say Lindman's for your pain, are probably going to be limited to alcohol, at least in the villages. If you're in pain, they're going to probably hand you vodka. I'm just going to be suffering with my milk because Simon don't drink. And he's just going to sit quietly on the train and he's going to be looking askance at everybody else because all he heard was the ravings of a Fraser. There was a fiery Lady E and Miss Maggie, well, screwed everything up for everybody else and was only interested in saving the professor. So, yeah, apparently it's every man for himself. Yeah, I would say you probably are getting that feeling that it really feels like the group is far afield from one another and collectively you're not in the right headspace together. Everything seemed to, it seems to have unraveled the past couple of days. It, it doesn't seem like we are working towards the same goal anymore. Yep. Okay. So, Lady Elizabeth, you are conscious. You are awake, likely resting. Characters can have healed a couple of hit points, two hit points, after last night. But other than that, you are on a train. I think I'm just sitting on the bench closest to the window, just watching out the countryside and trying to process in my brain the whole thing. Because as far as I remember, I was just thinking fire because tree. And then all of a sudden there was all of this light and pain. And I don't really remember a whole lot other than it hurts. And there was fire. Yeah. And just sort of picking at the bandages on my hands and trying not to think about how much it still hurts. Yeah, you're probably feeling a little physically weak today. Not just down in energy, but physical strength from whatever that thing that wrapped you up was. It still causes sort of this strange flash in your mind about what it actually looked like. It's hard for your brain to process that. The ride back to Belgrade takes a couple of hours. But afterwards, when you pull into the station there at Belgrade, the group gets wrapped up in the din of merchant traffic of people coming and going again it feels like the closer and closer you get to belgrade the more the volume goes up on everything and there's this real mental leap that you all have to do to force your well to force yourselves to act like people again i think that's likely very true for you mr fraser as you would still be coming to grips with well, the fact that you don't really remember a lot of what happened after you ran out of the house. Yes, I think he's just got kind of very muddled, hazy recollection of just an earthquake, the, the trees, something something big in, in the trees, fire and panic, gunfire. And then he was staggering through to see the little group of, uh, of the others with Lady Elizabeth unconscious on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'd have no memory of the fight that took place there. You would have basically a clean shear of your memory would be running out of the house and then strange shapes in the forest and then finding Lady Elizabeth's body. Mm. He's, very, he's very concerned with the whole situation because Lady Elizabeth's manner was different when they were going towards the um, the cottage in the woods. She seemed to be considerably more sprightly than usual. And then the whole business with Maggie's antics, retrieving the piece of the simulacrum and the consequent retaliation of uh, the old woman, grandmother, and the chaos that then ensued. He's, he's very concerned about the, the, the whole situation. 
He's got a memory of Richard throwing a gun at Alexander as well. Yeah. So the only the only person that seemed to be behaving in any way like himself was was Simon when he threw dynamite in the fire. Right. That's very true. So the five of you return to the Belgrade Hotel. You walk up to your rooms. This, very famously, the Belgrade Hotel that you're staying in has adjoining rooms, which is helpful. Inside the main room, you find Paul, who is happy to see all of you return. He immediately, of course, shows deep concern at some of the ways that you're all moving. But yeah, he helps everyone for the moment get settled asks if you need anything, is happy to send for room service for food, you know, the comforts of perhaps a um, strong drink or um, anything of the like. Oh, could you check me out and see if I, I you can prescribe me everything? I, I kind of hurt all over. Somebody hit me when I wasn't looking. Oh, yes, um, certainly. Certainly. Happy to help. And I could use some assistance after you look after Mr. Griffith, just sort of settling wearily into a chair. He turns. Um, yes, anyone else? Question. Um, when I take off my jacket in private for Paul, uh, am I just one big bruise? Yeah, effectively. You're, you're basically a bruise from the collarbone down as you got hit by something that was quite large and thick. And do I have any cracked ribs? You do. Um, so Paul takes some time and works with you, Simon. He does give you some medicinal liniments and, and tells you that they will likely make you fall asleep. Because he has performed a successful medicine roll. Ooh, you're going to recover three hit points. Uh, so you don't necessarily completely conk out, Simon, but um, you, you have been treated and uh, you have been, well, doctored, as they put it. Fraser is going to be fairly quiet on the on the journey home and when we get back back to the hotel and when they get in he's kind of gonna nod to uh, to Paul and he's heading into his room because there's something he wants to get a couple of just a couple of minutes in there comes out with a uh, a book in his hand and he if Lady Elizabeth is sitting in the kind of communal area um, he's going to approach and uh, quietly say um might I have a a word in private, your ladyship, if you're feeling up to it. Yes, uh, fine, Mr. Fraser. Just for the keeper's purpose, is this before or after Paul does his medicine work on her? Um, it can be whenever feels appropriate. Um, if if he doesn't get a chance to speak to her before Paul looks at her, um, then that's that's fine. He'll, he'll bite his time. I would say that he likely has all the time. He at least has 10 plus minutes medicine traditionally does take a little bit of time to get going so I would think that this takes place before Paul sees you is Fraser indicating that he wants to leave to a more private space or where's Maggie Maggie would go to her room to make sure that Paul didn't fuck with her shit while she was gone because I believe I did threaten Paul's life and that would be the first priority on Maggie's mind as well as getting all the pieces together laying them out gazing at them lovingly cuddling them a little bit okay well that suits Fraser's purposes quite nicely um if if Maggie is in her room lovingly touching her body parts uh then well I guess while maybe while Paul is is seeing to Simon in his room perhaps you know hand over this uh this book to her ladyship there's something you need to know about Paul. He knows a lot more about the Comte than any of us knew. He has been reporting to him throughout the course of our journey. He has been ostensibly acting as his eyes and ears within our party. However, it is apparent to me from what he is saying that he is deceiving the Comte. He has known of his existence ever since Paris and he knows who he is and what he is. And, well, not to put too fine a point on it, your ladyship, he has been trying to kill him unsuccessfully. Yes, I would say quite unsuccessfully. It would appear that the Comte is a very difficult man to harm, 
uh, which uh, frankly does not surprise me, having seen at least a little of what he is capable of. This book, Paul has given it to me. It, it is in Latin, so I believe that uh, you may be able to make some sense of it. It describes, uh, as I understand it, in detail exactly what we're dealing with when it comes to the Comte, and perhaps it might provide you with, with some insight as to how how to uh, do away with him, shall we say. I suppose I can have a look. I'm not exactly in a reading mood at the moment. No, 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 I, I, I understand that, of course. But this brings me on to the second thing I wanted to speak to you about, and that is Miss Bellinger. It is very clear, very, very clear to me, and I, I would imagine to everyone now, that Miss Bellinger, the Comte has a hold on her, a very strong mental and possibly physical hold, and it is connected with this simulacrum. The crux of it is, Your Ladyship, and I don't say this lightly, we cannot trust Margaret Bellinger. Mr. Fraser, I have not trusted Miss Bellinger since Paris. However, and there's just a deep sigh and a wince, as said sigh hurts, I don't think she's beyond help yet. I would hope and pray that that is the case. However, the behaviour that she is exhibiting, I've seen it before. It has all the traits of an addict. We have to get those pieces of the simulacrum away from her as far away as possible, as soon as possible, because it's a slippery slope for her. And if, if I know an addict, and I assure you, your ladyship, I do, then she will stop at nothing to protect her connection to this thing. Yes, I am quite cognizant of how deep the malady runs at this point. I'm going to do what I can. I don't know how effective we will be at separating her from the pieces, but I'm going to do some research when I can into how I can potentially, maybe, perhaps, break the connection. I don't know if I can. It has been suggested to me that I might be able to do so, and if it is within my grasp, I will try. But I don't know what I can do. Well, um, your grasp, your ladyship, if I might make so bold, is considerably stronger than it was a few days ago. I don't know exactly how or why, but I haven't seen you use a stick since, well, this, since the first night of the, the village. And there's a very, actually sort of soft smile instead of the wry or sardonic one you usually get. No, it has been quite interesting. I'll just say, Mr. Fraser, I've uh, learned some family secrets. Well, I hope that you are still yourself, your ladyship. This change I've seen in you, that it... I, I must admit, stronger though you do appear physically, I... It does concern me. I, 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 I don't wish to overstep my bounds, but please be careful. Your concern is noted, Mr. Fraser, and I do appreciate it. However, I think I'm more myself than I was before. Just that same soft, wistful sort of smile again. And then another wince. That, that wistful smile does not make him any less concerned. <laughs> if you need me, you know where I am. One more thing, Mr. Fraser. Of course. In your professional opinion, can we trust Paul? I have uh, asked myself the very same question. Based on my conversation with him, I think he is a lot more complicated a man than I had given him credit for. But it seems to me that we can trust him. He could have, at any point, made our lives considerably more difficult when it comes to our dealings with the Comte. But I, I, I hope and pray that he has acted in our interests. He wants to see this simulacrum destroyed as much as uh, as much as we do. He said that much, and uh, and I believe he was speaking the truth. There's the old sardonic smile again this time. Oh well, I was rather hoping you would say so. I would hate to have to find another doctor at this stage. They're so hard to break in. He's an asset to the group, I think. If nothing else, it means that we have 
some potentially some forewarning of when we are likely to run into the Compte again. Very well, Mr. Fraser. If you don't have any other pressing business, uh, I am finally feeling rather tired, and I do believe I see Paul returning. Of course, of course. Well, that um, uh, that uh, is an uh, ideal opportunity. And then I think for me to go and check on Simon, there's uh, a few things that I need to discuss with him as well. Yeah, Paul comes in. He knocks into before he like enters the space. Do come in, Paul. He steps in very lightly, says hello to you, Mr. Fraser. I'll nod and make my exit. He brings in his black medical bag. Is the professor still in the room? That's a good question. Professor, where are you? I think Richard would be in his room, reacquainting himself with his uh, treasure possession. Is that what we're calling it? Okay. Yes. So if the professor's not there, I'll just look at Paul and just sort of sigh. So we might want to go to more private room in case someone else walks in. It's not quite a delicate situation. Very well. He uh, extends his hand to, to assist you in getting up. Which I need at this point. Yeah. He helps you back to your space, your personal space, and uh, is able to close the door. I will show him the burns, which I assume also probably have some on my chest uh, and just in various places. Yeah, there's sort of, um, I think the easiest way for me to explain it is there's sort of like singular stripes that run around your body. They sort of make, I I don't want to say tiger stripes because that's not the right way to think about it, but they do make sort of arcing passes over collarbone, breast, ribs, stomach, thigh, and they're not in any one space, right? They, they sort of arc out all over the place where these things touched you at. Clearly, Paul is likely, his, his eyes are down like at the floor, except when it is necessary for him to inspect specific areas. Um, and he's very um, analytical about his movements. There isn't any sort of social stop for him, right? He sort of sees it as a, seemingly sees it as a black and white issue. This needs to be done, so X. X needs to be done, so Y will be done here. And in this time period, I think I'm used to male doctors because especially when I was a child and starting to have problems, there weren't many female doctors. Probably not. Other than women's issues, to use the euphemism. So I think it doesn't really bother me all that much. Yeah, Paul is as respectful as one could be given the amount of spaces that is required to for him to work in. He affords you any amount, any and every amount of covering as necessary. He seems to almost prefer it. It allows him to focus on specific areas. So he will perform his wonderkin medicine on you. This process is going to take him probably about 45 minutes sort of gritting my teeth the whole time. You're able to heal two hit points worth of damage over the time that he's with you, and then over that hour or so to set things in. It is an exhaustive process for Paul because he is not, he's not leaving any stone unturned in the healing process. So he's going into every area, every space, until he feels like they're properly disinfected and bandaged and prepared. He does mention that he's a little concerned about how long it took for you to get to someone with his skill level. Not many physicians of your skill level out in the village, I'm afraid. Well, then we're lucky to still have gotten you when we got to you. I do appreciate it, Paul. I don't know what we'd do without you. He doesn't say anything. And that's very sincere. I guess the best way for me to put it is that Paul doesn't seemingly pick up on your sincerity. It doesn't register with him. or There's no reaction from when you say it. And this like might be a little bit tough for Lady Elizabeth to, to understand because she is not always so completely sincere to people whom don't share her station. And so when she is, she probably feels like she's socially stretching 
And it, so it falls completely flat because Paul doesn't pick up on it at all or he doesn't react to it. Well, I tried. He's very straightforward and he goes to work and then bids you adieu, making sure that you have any sort of additional painkillers should you so need them. I think the whole thing and then also getting tended to, which is very strenuous, even though it's supposed to, it does help in the long run, probably triggers a flare up Mm. at this point, which is just overwhelmingly exhausting. So I'm going to stay in bed for a while as long as the party will allow me to do so. Okay. So we can follow out of that scene and then perhaps pick up with another that needs to go on. Perhaps a, a bedside chat between Simon and Mr. Fraser. So there's a soft knock at your door, Simon, shortly after Paul leaves. Come on in. And um, Fraser uh, puts his head in, comes in, says, Do you have a, a few moments, Simon? How, how, how are you feeling? Uh, Simon's actually sitting at his desk as opposed to laying in bed because he's collecting his thoughts and he doesn't want to sleep at this point. Are you sure you should be out of bed? Uh, I, I'm thinking about things, and to be perfectly honest, at this point, you're probably the only person I'm willing to talk to. Well, I, uh, well, that might not still be the case once you've heard what I've got to say. Uh, that's possible. On the other hand, uh, if, if you'll take a, a bit of advice from someone who's been traveling with you for a few months, you might need to speak to someone about what happened back out there. What do you mean? You lost your ship, man. Something happened. I I, I, I don't really recall exactly. I, it's all a bit of a blur. Uh, whatever it was, and I promise you I did not get any look at it because it clocked me before I could do anything. But... When I came to, I heard you screaming at it and picking a fight with it like anybody in the Bronx would. Picking a fight? With, with, with what? Whatever the creature was, and it sounded big. All right? Understand, it sounded bigger than a bull moose. Okay? And you weren't scared of it. You were calling it names, which I don't really know about. Because it's those those British names. They're either polite or they're just a strange another language. And you are definitely not yourself. Because this is yourself right now. Calm, collected, and usually with a head on your shoulders. I don't really know what to say, Simon. Uh, as, as I say, I it's all a blur. I remember you... Throwing the dynamite, uh, we ran. There was some sort of earth tremor, and and there was something in the trees, but and there was noise and shouting and gunfire and and, and fire, and and that's really all I all I remember. You were hurt, weren't you? Before I could even do anything, I was running. All I knew is I was running. I heard Lady E. Oh, I heard this creature, heavy creature, stomping after us. Heard Lady E scream, and then something clocked me like nothing else you can imagine, and that was it. Next thing I know, I'm, I, I come to and I'm scrambling into the brush and trying to get away, because I didn't know where anybody was, and I was hurt all over. But I heard you. You were saying, "Oh, you're back on your feet now. Come on, let's let, let's." You know, beat this thing up. And it's like, I'm thinking to myself, son, I, I got six cracked ribs. They could be happening. Oh, I, I, I don't remember any of that. No, that's, no, I, no, that, that can't be right. You, you know, I, I think you snapped just like during wartime. You saw the bo- when some of the boys would lose it. The difference is, is you didn't die. I, I, I don't, I, I don't know what to say. Well, I, I am not mad at you. I'm not scared of you. And I have no concerns over... Well, I may have some concerns of you if this could happen again. But that is why I'm saying if it might be an idea when you could sit down with someone who you could talk to about it and maybe they could help. Just because, hey, remember, my doctor, the one back in England who put me in connection with Dr. Smith. You, you may, may have heard me mention him briefly. 
Well, yeah, yes. That, I mean, there's, there'll be time for for all that later. We've we've got a job to do. Uh, I understand. We need to focus on the task in hand. That's a problem, isn't it? Anyway, that's not what I came to talk to you about. Do you recall the woman who came to us pretending or saying that she was your wife? Ah, yeah. Who was that woman? Not my wife. That's not an answer to my question, Simon. I didn't ask you who she wasn't. I asked you who she was. How well do you know her? She works for the same people I do. I do not know her except that her credentials check out. And who are these people that you work for, Simon? The United States government. And are you aware that, according to Professor Courtney, the man who shot him on the station platform was acting under instruction from this woman who works for the same people you work for, for the United States government? No, I was not aware of that. But you are aware that you are working for an organization that instructs its members, its employees, to shoot people. Yep, same thing as if I was in the army, I would be instructed to shoot people. Your point? We're not at war. Are you sure? So you don't have a problem with this, then? You don't have a problem with the fact that the woman claiming to be your wife gave an instruction for another member of your organization to shoot Richard Courtney. We see you didn't ask that before. Do I have a problem with that? Well, I am concerned that I was cut out of the loop. Absolutely. I would have said something else about that. On the other hand, can my organization be authorized to tell people to shoot people? Yes. That's how we stop saboteurs, and that's how we stop terrorists. You are prevaricating, Simon. I have one simple question for you now. One question that I would require a very direct answer to, please. If your organization ordered you to shoot Richard Courtney, would you carry out that instruction? Um, I would ask why. That is not what I asked. I asked for a straightforward answer and you did not give me one. No, I gave you an answer. It's just not the answer you wanted. No, I want a yes or no answer from you. That's what I'm asking for. You are avoiding the question. You are deliberately obfuscating, Simon. And I do not respect that in you. I thought you were a man of straight talking. I am a man of straight talking. But on the other hand, if they ordered me to shoot him, I would ask why. I do not like to shoot people when or if I have no understanding of why they're being shot. On the no, uh, 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 I'm not done yet. On the other hand, with everything going on with the professor or Miss Maggie lately and everything else. Simon, when you are a soldier at war and your commanding officer gives you an order, do you ask why? I have. (laughs) Really? Yes. I don't know how they do things in the American army, but in the British army, sir, when your commanding officer gives you an order, you obey it. You do not question it. That's the first thing you learn in basic training. Well, then we may differ. I mean, I understand you British do things differently. Look at your empire. Simon, you are talking round and round and round in circles in an attempt not to give me a straightforward answer to this question. I want to know why the organization you work for ordered Richard Courtney killed. And I do not know. Ask them. And I walk out the room. Okay. Well, I I guess um, given the time that Richard is taking with the device, Richard, will you be um, doing anything more than inspecting with it or doing anything more than preparing it or etc or there isn't much reacquainting it's a it's a mat it's a set, a set of goggles essentially well you, you say that but he did drop this off at a shop at, at a jeweler that he's been waiting a long time to see he's traveled miles and miles across europe and here he is there's hopefully now uh, another lens fitted uh indeed there is hmm well i mean He's going to be a little bit curious. How curious might you be? 
I think, curious enough to use it. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. I think that's a fantastic idea. Of course, I would say that. Yeah. So then I guess the question would be is, do you put it on? Yes. And it would have to be the new lens, of course. And the, uh, the one with the strange coating on. We haven't done much with that one. So this is a pow roll, of course. All right. Richard has a power of 80. Zero three. So that's an extreme success for you, Professor Courtney. I'm going to have you roll a D8 rather than a D6 on an extreme roll. I don't know if I've got a lucky D8. I roll them so infrequently. I have absolutely no idea. Oh, eight. Well, it's not good for the old magic point score, but... No, you you spend eight points of magic. So you set the device up uh, on your face. You feel the dice sort of lovingly click into place. It feels good to have it back where it's supposed to be. And your field of vision is drawn around the room. Obviously, you want to see all of the things, the threads immediately begin to take shape and you can see that there are all sorts of new threads now surrounding this space but your main focus draws to the mirror in the room it's a stand-up mirror it's probably you know three or probably four four and a half feet or so in a beautiful wood frame it's set here it's meant for making yourself look nice and smart before you leave the room and you can see something totally and wholly different in this mirror. What you see is not a reflection of yourself, not what you are expecting. What you see is a completely separate space, a landscape foreign to you. It's like looking through a mirror into a completely different world. What does this world look like? It's mostly grasslands. There's some very um, strange coloring to the grasses, too. There's yellows and, and pinks. It sort of sets the tips of the grass blades there with a, a flush. And I guess the easiest way to explain it for you is, is an accent color that rides on the top of the grass. There's a pathway there, just off center from the middle of the mirror. And the grass sways in the distance. The clouds there don't look like any sort of clouds you've seen before. Different shapes. There's almost a blue hue to them. And the portal, this beautiful space, you can feel an urge to go closer and closer, to inspect every angle. I think the, the, the question that Richard most wants to, uh, to ask and have answered is, if he goes up to the mirror and he touches it, his hand go through I don't know are you going to touch the mirror professor yes well it seems that there's no mirror at all Ooh. when you go to touch that plane that flat plane where the mirror should be your hand just the tips of your fingers are illuminated by a sun light that exists in that space and now the question is, is can your brain accept what just happened as truth? Right. That was a fail then in that case. That's a 74 over uh, 38. Yes. All right. So I think that this is fairly reasonable given the circumstances that you've been under. Okay. So Richard, you're going to lose three points of sanity for me. Oh, we're getting a bit close there, but not quite. Your, your brain struggles to accept and understand the information that's coming through even such a strange device as the one you've grafted to your face now. You can feel heat, not just inside your fingertips. You can feel heat inside your eyes, like your eyes are starting to feel hot. Not steaming, you know, hot kettle hot, but just real warm. But you glimpse it there, a space beyond, one that is not Belgrade, one that is somewhere, somewhere, 
Richard has a look in the mirror. I don't mean he's going to put his head in there. Not not yet, at least. Can he sort of see anything else or just uh, grasslands? Grasslands, some strange trees, like maybe you'd seen out of a, perhaps a, a world almanac in the university. And perhaps something like an African set of African trees to your right there. Okay. Maybe it's Africa. That would make sense. Richard's going to resist the temptation to to step in any further. I think he's going to grab something from the room, some, I don't know, chair or table or something, and just shove a leg through. Okay, so you, what, break a table leg off? Yeah. Okay. You pull hard at this table leg from the nightstand that's in your room and you see the nightstand sort of topple a little bit and you have to sort of cradle it down without making a huge racket. It's a little difficult, but you get the table leg, which is what your importance is. And you, you're going to just lob it in there? You're going to throw it in there? Oh, no, he's going to put it in. He wants to take it out again and see what happens to it. Okay, so you put it in and take it out again to see what happens. And you get just the slightest coating of this sort of shimmer on it as it comes out. And then it almost seems to slough off and back into the mirror. Hmm. Richard has a cunning plan, but I don't think he's ready for it yet. He'll, he'll take the device off. Take the device off. You feel the same after effects as you always do when you take the device off. You're physically and mentally drained. The room and the mirror returns as it was. But now in the center of the mirror, you see that same sort of mirrored picture of yourself. And when you take the device off, just for a second, you're not sure if your image is lining up correctly anymore. So the image of Richard in the mirror doesn't appear to line up anymore. It's a little off. Hmm. I think Richard wants to show somebody this at the earliest possible opportunity. All right. So you, you rush from the room. Who, who are you going to show? Oh, it's got to be Maggie. Doesn't it always? Hasn't it? He'll knock on the door. Uh, Maggie? Oh, uh, yes, Richard, come in. I have something quite amazing to show you. Oh, you do? What is it? Um, oh, we've seen a lot of very strange things. Um, this this is absolutely bizarre. Um, I, I believe I've... I found a way to another another place. Uh, one, that, one that's not Belgrade. Well, like a train. Like there's a train leaving soon, or? No. I mean, uh, have, you, have you experienced anything un, unusual with your... And he gestures towards the, uh, no doubt, the various collection of limbs and things on the, on the side. Uh, he gestures to them with um, a table leg. You're not sure where he's gotten it from. You know, um, maybe you've been in some sort of dream state or uh, you've kind of, I don't know, things things have felt different around you, that, that kind of thing. Um, I believe I can understand what you're saying, Richard. Right. Well, is there a mirror in this room? Yeah. I, I'm not quite sure how this would work, but um, I that that mirror will probably change if I put this device on. I, I would be interested to see if you see the same thing that I do. Oh, I'd be very interested in in seeing if that were the case, Richard. How does it change? Have you done this already once? I I have. Um, if you remember, uh, this is just come back from the uh, the, the jeweler. Um, well, well, from from Alexander. Uh, it, it's it's had this new lens fitted, and it, it seems to have extraordinary properties. Oh, um, look, let me let me put it on and show you. Um, I, I'm I'm curious to see whether it's just something I see, or, or whether it's something you see as well. Oh, fantastic! Uh, an experiment then. And and if you see it too, perhaps we could. Um, oh, I don't know. Pay the place a visit. Oh, I'm. I, I'm more interested every every word that you, you that comes out of your mouth, Richard. Do, just go ahead and put it put it on, Richard. So Richard will put the device on. All right, you put the device on. Same lens configuration as before. Oh yes. All right, so power roll first. 
Can I spend luck on this? Oh, you could, but I'll just bend a hand of fate for you, Professor Courtney. Oh, and I'll allow it to be a success because I'm certain our listeners would like to see where this is going to go. Go ahead and spend a D8 worth of magic points. And remember, of course, that once you run out of MP, you'll lose hit points. That was only four this time. Ooh. Okay. The lens... You're putting it on yourself, or are you putting it on her? Uh, Well, the idea is that Richard got a table leg and the table didn't have the device on, but it went through anyway, so... Okay, yep. Okay, so it's on. You see the mirror. You again see that space beyond. It looks a little different from this space. You see uh, a rolling set of hills, very similar grasslands. And in the distance, you see a very small stone structure that seems to be jutting up. Looks like it's made out of some sort of beige or maybe brown stone that's been worked. Could be Africa. It could be other places. Um, can, can, can you see that, Maggie? And then he's going to actually poke the table leg through it again. What does Maggie see? So, Maggie, for the first few moments when the professor puts this together... You just see the normal mirror. Everything is the same. There's nothing that is different. And the lenses click into place around Richard's face, and seemingly he's gone off to wherever it is he goes when he sees these things. Unfortunately, things do not stay that way. Out of the front of the lens, his eyes begin to glow with an opalescence, and it begins to spread all over the room. That light begins to shine out. And suddenly you realize that Richard's eyes are beginning to sort of act like a torch. In the sense that whenever he scans at something, he reveals something that you were not prepared to see. You're not prepared to see the walls bleed away and be taken over by this strange and alien landscape. You're not prepared to see any of that. None of that possibly makes any sense. There's no way that the lens can project and break reality all at the same time. But we're going to find out if your brain can hang on. And you're going to make me a sand roll. Let's find out. Oh, uh, 58 over 44. Okay. So that is a failed sanity roll. And given what you're seeing, I'm going to roll a d10. All right. So, that is 10 points of sanity you'll lose, but the Hand of Fate is going to come in and protect you, as was cast for you. And so, you won't lose any immediate sanity. I'll just use that as a buffer word there. Immediate. Okay. So, you have been protected through the Hand of Fate. Fantastic. Thank you, Hand. That said... The sheer amount of reality melting that is going around is not something that you'll process very well. It is terrifying, at least a little bit. It might be also wondrous. I'm going to leave that for Maggie to suss out for for how, how she feels about it. But the room itself is now half in Belgrade and half somewhere else. And you can see the professor sort of shaking this table leg at the middle of a wilderness that doesn't make any sense. There's no mirror, it's gone. Mm-hmm. R- Richard, can you hear me? I think so, yes. Yes, yes. Richard, where... Where are we? Did you... You take us to this place? Richard, it's not just the mirror. Right. I I, I, I can see. Why, why don't we... Why don't we both approach the mirror or, or yes but Richard the walls are gone what what do you mean the walls are gone we're here we're there at this place but I'm also still in my room wow I I, I must confess this is not the uh, uh the the effect I I thought this would have this is um wondrous your eyes began to glow and, and everywhere the light shone it has changed to this place. Well, will you will you follow me through the mirror? Uh, Richard will feel Maggie's hand uh, take his hand. Uh, Richard will do the obvious thing. 
You're going to step forward into the mirror? Yes. Fantastic. So at this point, I'm going to end the normal portion of our recording. And we're going to go into the rewards for Act 4. As Maggie and Richard slip through the mirror and leave Belgrade behind. So the cast has done some pretty fantastic stuff over this portion of Act 4. And I'm going to reward them for their hard work. And that will come in the form of both sanity and luck, which I'm certain Mr. Griffith will be more than happy to hear. All right. So because it was a collective effort, all of these are collective efforts. I I don't think that I want to curtail any of the bonuses given. So you're all going to get the same bonuses because that feels the right way to do things. So I'm going to roll some dice here, and we're going to see what you get. So these are sanity rewards for collecting things and and making accomplishments. All right. So for bringing the book to Grandmother's Cottage and opening it successfully without that turning into a complete farce before it actually gets opened, you'll earn three points of sanity. This was an important action our investigators took this season. It doesn't mean that it won't turn out bad for them in the future, but it's important that they did it this season. For fleeing and getting away, the investigators actually earned four more points of sanity for surviving the cottage and grandmother's uh, fate for them. And then I'm going to award, very specifically, I'm going to award all of you what I will call a wisdom award, which is two more additional points of sanity recovered because you made some very smart choices in some very, and and with the potential that you could have made some very stupid choices. And I'd like to award smart choices if you don't mind. Okay, now luck. So since I had the opportunity to go back and review some of the luck that you could have gotten based off of the rewards from other campaigns that have been written, uh, in, in the sort of, sort of newer format, I'm going to award you all a D10 worth of luck, which I'll roll now. That's seven points. You can only take seven more points of luck. And so those are your rewards for the finale of Act 4. With that being said, if you are listening to this in real time, for the next two weeks, the Orient Express show will be off as we sort of prepare for Act 5. And uh, I look very much forward to seeing what happens on the other side of that mirror. So thank you and good night.